from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, you're listening to the Centre for European Reform podcast. This is Beth Oppenheim, and today I'll be talking to some of our researchers about the upcoming European Parliament elections. I've got people with me on the line from Brussels and in our podcast studio in London. Hello, everyone. And today we are talking on the 15th of May. So the voters will be going to the polls towards the end of next week. So that's just a bit of context. On the 23rd to the 26th of May, nearly 400 million EU citizens from the 28 member states will go to the ballot box to elect 751 MEPs to the European Parliament. This year, the polls are showing that the grand coalition of the centre-right European People's Party and the centre-left Socialist and Democrats will lose their majority of seats for the first time. That means that Eurosceptics could obstruct and set the tone of the EU agenda for the next five years, especially on important issues like migration. And today we're going to talk about the main battlegrounds for the elections. So France, Germany, Italy, Poland and Spain make up half of the European Parliament's seats. Our in-house experts are going to offer their perspective from each country, as well as from the European institutions in Brussels. Plus, we'll look at what's going on in the UK as Britain limps on uncertainly into the election. So each of you are going to have just four minutes and we're going to work our way alphabetically through the key member states, ending with the view from the EU institutions. So first up, I have the CER's director, Charles Grant, with me here, who is going to be our honorary Frenchman. This is the first European election for Macron's La République en marche. How is Macron doing? Will his presidency be on trial in this European election? I think Macron has put his presidency on trial because he's built up his contest against Marine Le Pen into a kind of Manichaean struggle of, as he sees it, good against evil, of openness against closeness, of Europe against nationalism. So he's taking a risk in doing so because if, if, as some recent opinion polls suggest is quite possible, Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National national rally gets more votes than Macron's own La République en Marche, Uh, party, then he'll be humiliated. And if Macron is humiliated uh, by these election results, that'll weaken his authority at home. It won't won't mean he can't go on being president. He's elected for another three years. But also, even more, it'll weaken his authority in the EU, because any EU leader who's weaker at home and he's losing elections at home just has less chutzpah to uh, push his EU colleagues to do what he wants. So I think he may have made a mistake in personalising these elections. Ironically, we may see the first round of the presidential election of 2017 repeated in that election, both Macron and Le Pen got scored in the low 20s, roughly. Um, Macron did rather better than Le Pen, so went through to the second round. But the, the recent opinion polls suggest they're both at about sort of 22, 23% of that, of that nature. So it may look rather like it looked in 2017. But what's also quite remarkable is that the centre-right, uh, Les Républicains, and the centre-left, the Parti Socialiste, have not recovered from the very low ebb in their fortunes that we saw in 2017. One would have thought that given Macron has lost a lot of his popularity since 
became president, you would have seen the traditional centre-right and centre-left parties rise up and fill the, the gap left by Macron's waning popularity. But actually, that's not really the case. The Socialist Party are polling about 5% in the opinion polls, the lowest in their history since they were founded by Mitterrand in the late, late 1960s. They may not even get, in, get into the European Parliament if they don't get the 5% threshold on the nationalist system that France employs. Meanwhile, the Republica have a new right-wing leader who's kind of chasing after Le Pen's voters, Laurent Vauquier, but he's not doing terribly well either. I mean, they're polling now at about 14% of the opinion polls, which is way below where you would have expected. So the centre-right and centre-left are not doing well. Macron's actually doing quite well in the circumstances. He, he may, certainly will become second and could conceivably also still win these elections, despite all the mistakes he's made. And then you've got other other important groups to be considered. Are the Greens on about 8%, La France Insoumise, that's the far-left group led by Mr Mélenchon, on about 9% a new far-ish right party called the translation of the French word is France Arise on 4%. So and nobody's doing very well in these elections in France, in essence. And how do you think that the French public should judge Macron on his progress as president? I mean, he promised to reboot the Franco-German relationship. He promised a very ambitious domestic reform agenda. How, how has he done? Well, I think one of Macron's problems in these elections is he hasn't fulfilled his promises on reform of the European Union. I mean, there are a number of reasons why he's not going to do terribly well and he's lost popularity. One is people don't like his arrogant style. He has, of course, compared himself to Jupiter, and that was probably a mistake. The Gilets jaunes protests have weakened him in the last six months and perhaps deterred him from some of his more radical reforms. He has done some reform, and the economy is not booming, so that doesn't help him. But I certainly think his lack of success on the European agenda is part of his problem in these elections. He had a very clear strategy when he took office. This was to reform the French economy by pushing through difficult reforms that Mr Chirac and Mr Sarkozy, his predecessor, had failed to push through, and to win credibility with with Berlin through showing that he could actually get France moving again. And he did, to be fair to him, some of the reforms quite well. But Germany didn't fulfil, as seen from Paris, its side of the bargain. The problem was that when Merkel was uh, re-elected, there was a long gap before Germany formed a government because of the uncertain result of the German election and Merkel's relatively poor performance. So it was a long time when there wasn't a German government for Macron to deal with. Then when there was a government, it was led by a weaker leader than he had expected to deal with. The German political system, whatever Merkel's own views, which are unclear, didn't agree with Macron's idea that the only way to save the Eurozone is to establish elements of a transfer union so that richer countries like Germany subsidise poorer countries like Italy. The Germans, with their Dutch allies, leading a new so-called Hanseatic League of North European countries, countries who don't want the transfer union have basically blocked Macron's main ideas for reform. He has got agreement on the idea of a eurozone budget, but it's going to be very, very small. And, and my own view is that Macron is right, that in the long run, the euro isn't going to be very a very healthy, happy club unless the richer countries effectively transfer resources to the poorer countries. But the Germans and the Dutch don't agree with that. And Macron's failed to find a way of getting the Germans on board. There's a lot of, there's a lot of strain in, between Berlin and Paris. There's a lot of strains in the system at the moment. In some ways, perhaps Macron is due some punishment at the ballot box and unfortunately that might mean gains for the Eurosceptics. I'm now going to move to Leonard Schutter to talk about Germany. So, Leonard, Germany's party politics has been shifting. I wonder whether you could tell us what the state of the campaigns are right now for the European elections. Well, the election campaign hasn't really gained any momentum in Germany, and like most of the recent election campaigns that have happened in the country, it's been a pretty dull affair. 
So there's been a remarkable absence of any controversy or any serious policy debate on the big issues that Charles just alluded to, such as reforms of the Eurozone, reforms of the Schengen area, Brexit, or even EU foreign policy. As Charles has also said, there's still no serious engagement with Emmanuel Macron's proposals of how to reform the EU and the Eurozone specifically. Instead, the campaigns have really revolved around generalities and platitudes, emphasizing the importance of the EU for peace and prosperity. Perhaps the only two notable exceptions to this rule were climate policy, which due to recent Fridays for Future protests have received some attention, and Manfred Weber opposition to Nord Stream 2. But in general, the lead candidates for the parties are hardly known. So even Manfred Weber, who as the Spitzenkandidat of the European People's Party, could potentially become the president of the European Commission, is only recognized by around a quarter of Germans. And nobody knows the Spitzenkandidat of the Greens, the German Ska Keller, and only Katharina Barley, the national lead candidate of the Social Democrats as a justice minister, is somewhat better known. And I'm interested to know, you spoke about there being lots of platitudes going on. Are there significant policy divergences between different parties or not particularly? Uh, not terribly so, and, and even if one wouldn't really know about them. So the, the party programs espoused by the mainstream parties are along the lines of the traditional conservative view of the EU, broadly pro-European, somewhat tough on migration, pro-liberal economic policies, as Charles said, whilst the Social Democrats focus on European minimum wage, um, the Greens focus on, of course, a more ambitious climate policy and greater democratization. But but I, I must emphasize that neither of these policy questions hasn't, hasn't really featured in the public debate. And could you just take us through some of the polls right now in Germany? How's that looking? Well, unlike in countries like France, the campaigns in Germany are not really polarized between pro and anti-European forces. And contrary to what many Anglo-American commentators like to write, the far right, the Alternative für Deutschland, has not really played a prominent role and polls at around 10 to 12 percent, which would be less than it received in the last parliamentary elections in 2017. So parties favorable to the EU will receive an unequivocal majority of votes. Where Germany does fit into the broader European pattern, however, is that mainstream parties are said to lose a significant share of votes. So latest polls suggest that Angela Merkel's CDU is likely to lose about 5%, dropping to around 30%. And chiming with the general decline of social democrats in Europe, the SPD, the German Social Democrats, are likely to plummet from 27% to 16%, for the first time being overtaken by the Greens as Germany's second strongest party with 19%. The Liberals and the far left are both at around 7%. But given that there's no minimum vote threshold in European elections in Germany, there'll be several small, somewhat obscure parties that will gain seats. And then one more question for you. What are the national implications of the European Parliament vote in Germany? Well, the implications of the European election for national politics could be rather significant because the elections are taking place in the context of an already fragile grand coalition between the CDU and the SPD. And were either of them, or potentially both, to receive a beating from the German electorate, it's conceivable that one of them could pull the pluck on the grand coalition. So the CDU will hold a board meeting right after the elections, which have sparked rumours of Merkel's resignation as Chancellor. And that will likely mean fresh general elections, perhaps leading to Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer as the next German Chancellor. German politics at the moment are perhaps more unpredictable than they have been in a very long time. Right, thank you very much, Leonard. I'm going to move us seamlessly onward. So I'm going to turn to you, Luigi Scazzieri, our resident Italy expert. You're on the line from Brussels. Hello, Luigi. Hi, Beth. Pleasure to be on this. 
So Italy's mainstream has really been decimated by the rise of the right-wing Liga party and the populist five-star movement. Could you give us some insight into how this looks like it's going to play out in the European election? Yes, uh, with pleasure. So let me first of all start by saying that, of course, uh, the elections uh, in large part will be fought on domestic issues and indeed have a strong impact on domestic politics. But there's also a very strong European dimension to this campaign and perhaps stronger this time than in all other previous uh, previous occasions. So parties are using European themes to appeal to voters, to reinforce their agendas and to position themselves in the European space. And interestingly, there are no, no status quo parties, really. Of course, there are parties who are very strongly pro-European, but they still advocate reform. And on the other hand, Italy's uh, government being relatively Eurosceptic, of course, there are also very strong Eurosceptic forces. So just to start from uh, the most Eurosceptic side of the spectrum with the the League, the League uh, led by Matteo Salvini is uh, expected to get around 30% of the vote, which will be about double of what it was able to score at the last general election. And of course, this result would cement its, its political dominance. Now, it's interesting to note that the League has replaced its sharp criticism of the EU and the Euro with a slightly milder tone where it calls for reform of both from within, uh, while still maintaining a highly critical stance towards the EU's current functioning and, uh, and policies. And uh, the campaign has really been structured, again, on both domestic and European themes, on opposition to migration, law and order, lower taxes. But also, uh, Salvini's been trying to position himself as the leader of a right-wing populist grouping at a European level and to really emphasise uh, this even in the, in the Italian domestic sphere. The League's partners in government, the Five Star Movement, is doing quite a lot more poorly in general. Their ratings are around 20%, so they've decreased a lot since the, the last election. And in a sense, what they're trying to do, the way they're framing the campaign, is a way of regaining voters that they have lost. So they are highlighting their achievements in government, such as the universal citizen's income. And in general, they're campaigning on a platform which is slightly more pro-European than the League. So, for instance, they advocate greater powers for the European Parliament. They're emphasising the green economy, workers' rights and so on. And they've distanced themselves from the League on themes such as migration and also very much criticised its choice to uh, ally itself with uh, uh, far-right populist parties at the, at the European level. Now, those are the government parties. Concerning the opposition, the main opposition is the left-wing, centre-left Democratic Party, plus its allies, again, uh, predicted to uh, score about 20%. And for them, the election is really a chance to bounce back from the poor performance in, uh, in last year's uh, general election. And they're campaigning, you know, domestically, uh, they're trying to criticise uh, the government, especially its economic record, but also its stance towards migration. And they've also positioned themselves as pragmatic defenders of the EU, so very pro-European, but also very much in favour of reform, calling for more integration, but also more solidarity, opposed to austerity, and and so on. And really, they've tried to frame the elections as a contest between pro-European forces and Eurosceptic nationalists, and really emphasise the need after the election to all pro-European forces should cooperate together. Interesting. Could the balance of power in Italy's coalition be affected? And do you think that this could destabilise the government? If the polls are right and the league does perform uh, as well as it's predicted to, while the five star loses votes, this will alter the balance within the coalition and weaken it from within. So the two parties have already been at loggerheads over a number of issues. And if the league gains uh, so many votes, I think Salvini might be tempted to uh, move towards elections. That's it from me.
Thanks, Luigi. That was great. That was exactly four minutes. And now I'm going to move on to Camino in Brussels. So Spain is going election mad. Not only is Spain holding European Parliament elections, but it's also going to be holding elections at the local and regional level simultaneously. Do you think that this could affect the way that voters approach the European Parliament election? Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me here. And yes, Spaniards, as usual, are doing the crazy stuff all together. I think the European elections happening at the same time as the council and regional elections will have two effects. The one is that turnouts will go up and it's predicted to go up from 43% in 2014 to um, over 63% because obviously Spaniards are very, very keen in voting for in their regional and local ele- elections because of the evolution of powers. So that's on the, on the bright side. On the greener side, having elections at the same time basically means that the interest and the focus is somewhere else. So European elections are often seen as, well, midterm elections in Spain anyway, so it, there's not much Europe in general or foreign policy stuff happening in debates and, and the likes. But because these elections are happening exactly at the same time than regional and, and local elections, this is going to be even more the case. And a, a recent official poll actually shows that over two-thirds of Spaniards are not interested in the EP elections, although six out of ten admit they matter. So this is a, a bit of a worrying trend, but, but something that is easily understandable if you look at the regions uh, which are at stake and also the fact that uh, major parties are not only fighting for uh, cities like Barcelona, Madrid or Seville, but also are basically uh, deep in talks uh, to form a, a government uh, following the April general election. Interesting. Thanks, Camino. And and what kind of main themes are you seeing mounted in the election? Do they seem like national political issues or is there a European dimension to them? There is absolutely no debate about Europe. I think that's partially because most parties are strongly pro-European and their, uh, if you want, their manifestos differ very little uh, when it comes to Europe, except for Vox. But Vox as I've written before, it's not as you know anti-European as all the all the parties in Europe. It's partially because of that, and also because we we are still uh, trying to solve the Catalonian issue. Uh, we are still still deep into talks, as I was saying before, form governments. So national issues are definitely dominating the Spanish debate. There is no debates about European policies at all. Right. And, and one more question for you. Given that the minority government in Spain didn't actually come to power via a general election, do you think that this European Parliament election might provide a clue as to the outcome of Spain's next general election? Right. So I'd say that this European election will probably have an effect on the April election, a retroactive effect. So the socialists are projected to win the election with Ciudadanos coming second and the conservatives going down, which is pretty much a similar situation that we had in the general elections. I think that would probably embolden the socialist party to go for their preferred outcome uh, when it comes to forming governments, which is having a minority government and not a coalition. But I think it's very hard to use these elections as if you want a bellwether for election uh, in the future. Thank you so much for your insight, Camino. So, Agata, I'm going to turn to you now. This is Agata Gostynska-Jakubowska, who is the CER's Poland and also EU institutions expert. So, has the rule of law dispute that's been ongoing between Warsaw and Brussels, which you've written about, do you think that this dispute has raised awareness of European issues in the minds of Polish voters? Do you think it will have any bearing on the European Parliament elections in Poland? 
Thank you, Beth, for, for having me on this on this podcast. And, you know, I, I'm afraid I will have to disappoint you. I don't think that the ongoing dispute around the rule of law in Poland has translated into greater knowledge um, of EU affairs. But what it could have done, I think it could have actually mobilized the supporters of the opposition parties in Poland, which uh, have joined forces under... A joint banner which is called European Coalition. And I think the supporters of the OR, um, in other words, the opponents of the current governing party, that is uh, Law and Justice Party, they see Law and Justice Party as a threat to democracy. And I think they might want to use European elections to express this opposition. And this is why I actually think that the turnout in Poland could be actually higher in comparison with turnouts back in 2009 and 2014, when it was around 25-24%. This time around, some people actually, some experts predict that it could perhaps even reach 40 percent, which would be quite extraordinary as for the elections, which are usually seen as the second order ones. Interesting. And high turnout isn't necessarily a good thing in this case, it sounds. Absolutely. And I think what is also worth perhaps adding is that in Poland, perhaps also similarly to to Italy, these elections actually constitute, you know, constitute a very important test ahead of parliamentary elections, which will take place in the autumn. Parliamentary elections are actually seen as the most important ones since the transformation in Poland. And you could argue that electoral victory of the European coalition, so the democratic opposition parties, could be actually, you know, could facilitate its standing ahead of the parliamentary elections could perhaps encourage those parties to again uh, join forces in the other elections. Now, obviously, peace, uh, so law and justice party in Poland, realizes that and has promised in this European campaign new social handouts to the Polish citizens, even though this aspect of social policy um, is basically, you know, in the hands of member states and has nothing to do with the European Union. So again, you have this aspect which we all touched upon already, which is domestic issues are bundled together with European issues in, in those elections which are very often seen as the simply national ones. And just to sum up, because I think my time is also running out, is both actually a law and justice party, so the party which is currently in power in Poland, as well as the opposition parties, particularly those which decided to basically run jointly in these elections, they go neck and neck. So it is really difficult to say who will win, and it's even more difficult to say whether voters will decide to show a yellow card to the governing party this time round. Perfect timing from you. We have got this far without mentioning the dreaded B word. Theresa May's government is reluctantly dragging the UK through the European Parliament elections. Ian Bond, the CER's foreign policy director, can you please tell us what is going on? 
Ah, if only if only I knew. These are going to be very peculiar elections indeed. The party that is leading in the polls in the UK is the Brexit party, which says that it doesn't want to be there anyway. One may doubt that, at least I think they want to collect the salaries of MEPs regardless of whether they turn up to the meetings. But they are the most avowedly pro-Brexit party and they are building a lot of their campaign on the idea that the British people have been betrayed by the failure to leave the EU so far. You have the Conservative Party, which is doing its best not to campaign for these elections at all, which is a very peculiar position to be in, but reflects, I suppose, the fact that a lot of their candidates for the European Parliament are relatively pro-European, whereas the party itself is becoming increasingly Eurosceptic, and it would probably be rather difficult for them to come up with a programme that they could uh, unite even their own candidates around. And you have the Labour Party, which is sitting itself firmly on the fence with Jeremy Corbyn talking in terms of Labour being the only party that can unite the UK, essentially by persuading Remainers that it is in favour of remaining and Leavers that it's in favour of leaving. And so far, the evidence suggests that it's not doing either of those. And then you have the the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, both of whom are actually doing rather well as, as a result of this confusion. If I can say this on a CER podcast... I think the uh, the Liberal Democrat slogan of bollocks to Brexit <laughs> is having a lot of resonance. Uh, so they are looking as though they will do significantly better than they did at the 2014 European Parliament elections. For our Remain-leaning listeners, which may be in the majority, who are based in the UK, how should they vote in the European Parliament elections if they want to avoid splitting the vote? That's a difficult question to answer because it depends where you are in the UK. There are websites that will try to tell you, based on the latest regional opinion polling, where they think your vote will have the greatest impact for which party. But it is quite complicated. If you're in Scotland, it seems pretty clear that if you're a Remainer, you almost have to vote for the SNP. If you're in the South West, it's quite complicated because there is a good existing Green MEP, but it's not clear that the Greens will do well enough on their own down there to justify everybody voting Green. And if you're in London, you can vote Liberal Democrat, you can vote Green, you can vote Labour, and some of the Labour candidates in London are well-known pro-EU figures. But if you go too far down the Labour list, you start to get into people whose commitment to the EU is much more equivocal. So it's a very, very complicated picture. And the system that the UK uses for allocating the seats, the so-called de Haunt system, makes it really difficult to work out how best to get the largest contingent of Remain-minded MEPs. And what could the implications of the European Parliament vote be at a national political level in the UK? Well, it really could be the end of the road for Mrs May. She's had disastrous local elections that have resulted in the loss of 1,300 council seats. If the Conservatives are pretty much wiped out in the European Parliament elections as well, then I think the pressure on her to step down immediately will become irresistible. Uh, I think the, the backbench 1922 committee will more or less lock her in a room until she has written her resignation letter. Right, so she's going to struggle to cling on beyond that. Right, and one final technical question, which is, do you think that British MPs are even going to take their seats on July the 2nd? I think it's very likely that they will, yes. Although Theresa May is going to introduce the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, which is the sort of implementing legislation for the Withdrawal Agreement, 
uh, and she plans to do that a week or so after the uh, elections, it's very unlikely that that will have got through by the time the new European Parliament meets for the first time at the beginning of July. And so I think it is quite likely that uh, those MEPs, whatever happens subsequently, will at least take their seats for a couple of months or so. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ian. So, Agatha, I'm going to now end by asking you about the view from Brussels, from the EU institutions. How are things looking in Brussels? I mean, how worried are people in the EU that this election could herald the end of the political mainstream? Well, I mean, probably notice yourself that there is quite a lot of uh, talk in town about the forthcoming elections. You know, because these elections do matter. Despite what you will hear from uh, numerous Eurosceptics, you know, both in the UK and elsewhere, the European Parliament is the only directly elected EU institution, which, by the way, codicide alongside the Council of the EU on the majority of EU dossiers. Now, obviously, there will be policy areas where the European Parliament has limited formal influence, but still, it has exerted informal one. So, you know, in light of the challenges that the EU is facing, uh, some of the challenges Luigi has already enumerated, you know, it really does matter who is going to sit in the next European Parliament. I think this is something that, especially here in the UK, people really have very little sense of how important the European Parliament elections really are. I'm also interested in the turnout. How is turnout looking across the EU? You talked about the fact that Poland looked like it's going to be quite surprisingly high. What about elsewhere? I mean, you've just said it yourself. One of the problems with the European elections is that they are usually secondary order ones and that they do attract little interest and ever since direct elections have been introduced on the European level and that is 1979 the turnout has been in decreased and it reached you know record law in 2014 when only 43% of the voters um, went to the polls. Now, um, there are reasons to believe um, that this this time round turnout, at least in some member states, will be higher. And I've mentioned already Poland, but UK could be also another member state uh, where turnout could be higher than um, than than before. Uh, the problem is that it is very unclear to say whether higher turnout could translate into greater support for pro-European parties. So let me just explain you what I mean. In Poland, for example, those who vote in European Parliament's elections, they're more likely to vote for pro-European movements, but it does not necessarily have to be the case elsewhere. Uh, European elections could be also seen as a protest vote against the EU as such. One more question for you, Agata. Could you please explain to listeners once and for all, what is the Spitzenkandidaten process and why does it matter and what's it got to do with the European elections? Sure, sure. I mean, Spitzenkandidaten is indeed something that we we hear quite a lot these days. And it very much sort of links with, with, with the issue of turnout because, you know, some, some have believed that the Spitzenkandidaten, which is whereby a candidate of the party which wins the biggest number of seats in the European Parliament becomes the president of the European Commission would actually, you know, facilitate a greater public discussion in the 
European Parliament's elections. Um, some have believed that this greater, you know, perhaps more direct link between the citizens and the European politics could boost interest in the European politics. Well, it hasn't happened so far. We know we already had the Spitzenkandidaten back in 2000. 14, but at that time, only 5% of the voters indicated that they went to the polls because they wanted to influence the makeup of the future European Commission's presidency. And to be honest with you, I don't see a huge enthusiasm uh, for the Spitzenkandidaten system this time round uh, either. I actually see that even, you know, experts in the think tank world, they are not that excited about this any longer. And we obviously will have to see whether any of the leading or lead candidates uh, will indeed become the European Commission's president because uh, member states themselves have distanced themselves from the system. I think it is also important to say that perhaps for the first time in European history, mainstream parties, you know, European People's Party and uh, Party of European Socialists, will probably not manage to have a majority in the European Parliament, which obviously will have its repercussions on how the European Parliament functions and operates. And we've ob obviously heard a lot about, you know, populist wave, which means that indeed there will be, the, the, the populist will probably gain some seats. Luigi has already uh, mentioned this, uh, there is this appetite to create actually Eurosceptic coherent bloc in the European Parliament. We will actually have to see whether this is the case. But uh, basically, that brings me to perhaps a positive conclusion. Now, we will have a more fragmented European Parliament. Pro-European forces will be weaker. But that also means that could encourage greater political competition, you know, on the European uh, wide level that will force uh, mainstream parties to be more vocal, to be more articulate about their priorities, uh, which uh, as a result, it seems to me, could actually increase interest in, in European uh, politics because up till recently people actually had problems, you know, distinguishing between objectives of the European People's Party and Party of European Socialists because broadly, you know, they were very similar. So um, if there is the silver lining and if I can end on this note, um, <laughs> I think we, we should also um, remember about that. I think what we've seen is that the face of the European Parliament will be significantly different after this election. We're probably going to have a stronger Eurosceptic presence with profound consequences for the EU's agenda. But as Agatha said, out of crisis can come creativity and reinvigoration and maybe that's what Europe needs. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CR underscore EU.